It's from Nehemiah 4, verses 1 through 9. Sambalay was very angry when he learned that we were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Sumerian army officers, What does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can rebuild the wall in a single day just by offering a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was standing beside him, remarked, The stone wall would collapse if even a fox walked along the top of it. Then I prayed, Hear, hear us, our God, for we are being mocked. May their scoffing fall back on their own heads, and may them, they themselves become captives in a foreign land. Do not ignore their guilt. Do not blot out their sins, for they have provoked you to anger here in front of the builders. At last the wall was completed to half of its height around the entire city, for the people had worked with enthusiasm. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs, Ammonites and Ashdodites heard that the work was going ahead and that the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired, they were furious. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. But we prayed to our God and guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. Thank you. You can be seated. Hello, hello, hello. Hi, Mike. How about that? We doing all right? Shout out to the sound people. You only notice them when something messes up. That's why you never notice them, because they do amazing. Let's give it up for our sound crew. They're awesome. Okay, now I can't preach with my hands, so I'm just going to be one-handed all day. I'm just working it, okay? Hey, my name's Jason. I'm the pastor here, and I am loving being together for this one service. We can't do it for long. We're going to go back uh, in the fall semester to two services, because we need the space but our theme this summer has just been family, yesterday, serving, breakfast, uh, our service together, um, the, uh, the last week, or the, uh, the, um, the valley uh, freeze, dairy freeze, going to lunch today. Our theme is just family. And we're, church is not just a service, it's a family. We want you to be a part of it. You got to engage. You got to connect. Without a doubt, the people who are the most engaged and connected here are the people who have taken the initiative to be engaged and connected. So we want to just encourage you to be a part of the family. Don't just come to church. Be a part of the family. So we're loving this this summer. And we've been taking uh, the last several weeks to teach through this Old Testament book of Nehemiah. I was joking about how tough the names have been. Our readers have been unbelievable these last several weeks because there's been a lot of big names in there and big words in there. But we're calling this series How to Begin Again Again because Nehemiah's story is a story about rebuilding and starting over. It's a story about fixing something that is ruined. And all of us have something or some things in our life that have been ruined or are ruined that we wanna fix, we wanna rebuild. And, and we've been using Nehemiah's story to learn some principles to help us for the things in our life that we're trying to rebuild. Maybe it's something like a marriage. Maybe it's a relationship with your kids your physical health, financial, your spiritual condition, 
Those things in our life that matter to us that are not how we want them to be and we wanna do something about it, but it's intimidating or we're cynical or we're discouraged, we're defeated. We wanna do something about it. Um, We're learning from Nehemiah. And I read this this week. I love Romans chapter 15, verse four, just the way it describes it. It says such things, talking about the Old Testament, the stories, the scriptures from the past, because Romans is in the New Testament. It says such things were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us and the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. I love this. This is what we're doing is that we're going back to these stories if you were raised in a religious environment at all, maybe you weren't, that's okay. But if you were, you know that, you know, these are some of the bedtime stories. These are the Sunday school stories. These are the children's church stories. And the reason that we read them and we teach them is so that we can be encouraged, so that we could have hope that our situation could possibly be different, that our situation could improve. And so we're being encouraged and finding hope um, in Nehemiah's story. And so, so far in this journey to begin again, again, We've learned about taking ownership for the things that are ruined in our lives. We can't blame, we gotta take ownership. We've learned about asking for God's help. Uh, A few weeks ago, I taught about the spiritual discipline of secrecy, which I'd never done before, but that was the, the third thing we learned about, which is really just doing more than talking about what we're going to do, which is not going great in our society. And then last week, Pastor Joe did a great job teaching that our work is for God's glory, that it matters because it's for God. I thought that was great, Pastor Joe. And um And so this week, our scripture brings up something that all of us face, all of us face, especially if you're trying to do something that matters. And what I'm talking about is dealing with negative people, dealing with negative people. Does anybody know a negative person? Let me see your hand. Anybody know a negative person? Anybody sitting by a negative person? Come on, let me see your hand. Sitting by a negative person. Anybody sitting by somebody who doesn't know they're negative? Let me see your hand. Anybody? Yeah, well, that's what Nehemiah is dealing with in this scripture, but it's not just negativity. I don't wanna just kind of keep it at the surface level and say, oh, these people are just so negative. He's dealing with more than negativity. He's dealing with threats. He's dealing with intimidation. He's dealing with lies and dishonesty and violence. And here's what I know for certain. If you ever decide that you're going to try to fix something that is ruined, you will have to deal with negative people. It's a good place to say amen right there. Come on, anybody know what I'm talking about? If you decide, whatever it is, if you decide you're going to rebuild something, you're going to improve something, you're going to make it better, you would think that everybody would be excited that you have decided to make something better. You would think that throw you a parade. They would, they would, they would, they would help. They would do whatever they could because you are doing something that needs to be done. You'd think, but that's not how it works. You deal with negative people and this has always been true, but I do believe it's more true now than ever before. And I know lately I've been railing on social media. It's because I've been doing all this research and writing about social media. So I'm just kind of a little bit hyper-focused on it right now, but social media has turned us into commentators. It's, it's turned us into a society of opinion givers and commentators It's not the doers who talk the loudest, it's the complainers who talk the loudest. And we believe that we should and we could share our opinion about everything, whether it has anything to do with us or not. Just the fact that we are having access to it, we believe we have the right or should share our opinion. 
And so when I read our scripture today, prepping for this message, I didn't wanna just talk about dealing with negativity. We could do that. I think there are principles we could learn just about dealing with negativity, but I wanted to try to dig a little deeper and try to get more at the root of why we as a culture and a society, and let's be careful, we don't just talk about them over there, out there somewhere. We're talking about us, okay? But why we're so negative and critical and angry as a culture and as a society. I don't know why I've noticed it more lately, but I've just noticed it more lately at every four-way stop I'm at, somebody's angry. Every four-way stop. Somebody's cussing, somebody's telling me I'm number one, somebody's telling me that, you know, and, and I, my heart, honestly, like I kind of laugh, but I also want to cry because I'm like, what is going so wrong in your life? What are you dealing with that you want to kill me? Because I thought I had the right of way. Like what in the world is going on? But you know what I'm talking about. Maybe it's not four-way stops, but it's, you know, your trash can is just barely touching the neighbor's yard line or, you know, there's all kinds of scenarios where it's like, is that really the appropriate reaction level we should be having in this situation? Culturally, it's much easier to tear things down than to build things up. It's easier to be offended than to believe in something. It's easier to be angry than calm. And this, this past summer, I guess we're in the summer now. So last summer, I read a, a biography about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I've mentioned it before. I really, really loved it, but... If you know anything about Bonhoeffer, you know that he was a young German pastor during World War II who was opposed to Hitler and eventually was killed for it. And so what I loved so much, I mean, I loved a lot about the biography, but what I loved about it was it really gave insight into somebody who was living in a society and a culture um, that, that caused him to question, you know, who he was and what he was doing and, and why it mattered. And I wanna read you something that he wrote about that time specifically about courage, because that's what we're talking about today. We're gonna talk about courage. We're gonna get there in just a moment. It's a little bit lengthy and a little bit wordy, but I thought it was important enough to share with you. This is what uh, was in this biography about Bonhoeffer and, and, and some of his words in here and then some of Marsh, the author's words. It says, in this day, talking about Bonhoeffer's day, it says, in this day, the danger was from the hollowing effects of totalitarianism and the leveling of all thought and feeling to the basest instincts. Against such a corruption, only quality could mount an adequate defense, but quality must cease to identify itself with privilege and rediscover the imperative of honor. This meant in social terms, renouncing the pursuit of position and the occult of celebrity in favor of opening upward and downward, particularly in the choice of one's friends, a delight in private life and the courage for public life. Now that was a mouthful, but let me tell you what he meant. Bonhoeffer was saying that he lived in a time when people had lost the ability to think and to reason. If they could think and reason, they would not have so easily joined the German side of the war. And he was watching his friends that he loved and that he had respected and ministers that he had loved and respected and leaders that he, and that, and he could not understand how they had lost their ability to think and reason, but he was seeing it happen all around him. They had lost, these people had lost their ability to think and to reason and they had been corrupted and, and they were able to do anything about it because they had lost the skills needed to do something about it. You with me? So he's looking at what's happening is going, wait a second, you're going the wrong way, but they did not possess the skills to be able to think and reason their way out of the corruption that they were experiencing. 
So after watching so many people like this, Bonhoeffer concluded that the only thing that would really make a difference and help these people who had lost their way was what he called a quality life. But he didn't mean quality as in wealth or privilege or power. He specifically meant a quality life in the choice of your friends, the quality of your private life and the courage you showed in your public life. This is how Bonhoeffer described a quality life. The quality of your friends, the quality of your private life and the courage you showed in your public life. Now, I wanna be really clear to point out that we're not living in the middle of World War II and we're not facing an evil dictator like Hitler. And so I'm not saying that, you know, social media was as bad as World War II. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not comparing the two as equals, but I do think there is something for us to learn. I do believe we're living in a time where many people have lost their ability to think and to reason Many values that used to be considered valuable, whether you were a Christian or not, you didn't even have to be a Christian, but there was kind of a joint set of values that we all kind of considered to be valuable. Now those values are treated with hostility. And listen, you hear me say this all the time as your pastor, so let me say it again. We don't have to be defensive about this. We don't have to be angry about this. We don't have to protest about this. We don't have to comment about this. But we can recognize that Man, it does seem like more and more as a culture and a society, we are being corrupted and the very skills that we need to not be corrupted, we do not possess. We cannot think and we cannot reason. What we have to do is keep the faith. What we have to do is trust that God is in control. But I say all that to say that especially for the Christian. And this is true even if you're not a believer. If you're here today and your faith is not in Jesus, there is even something in here for you. But especially for those of us who are believers, whose faith is in Jesus Christ, there is a premium on quality living. Quality living. On the quality of your friends, on the quality of your private life, and the courage for a public life. So that's what I wanna kind of just focus on for the time that we have left is courage. This quality life that we live will require courage. You wanna rebuild your family? I can promise you, it's gonna require courage. You wanna raise your kids differently? I promise you, it's gonna require courage. Same for getting out of debt, trying to live for Jesus. Pick the topic, whatever you wanna pick. If you want to change something, rebuild something that's ruined, try again, it will require courage. And maybe I don't need to say this, but as I was typing this out, I thought I may need to say this. Courage is not the same thing as animosity, okay? So sometimes we can get confused about what courage is and we think courage means being a jerk. We think courage means just telling it like it is or whatever it is that we say. That's not courage. That's just being a jerk, okay? Courage is not animosity. Usually what people call courage is just defensiveness, right? But I can promise you, if you wanna rebuild something, you're gonna have to deal with some Sambalots in your life. We read about Sambalot today. And did you notice what it said that he did in verse one? Verse one, he shows up, he sees Nehemiah, he sees the people working. And this is the phrase it says in the translation we read. It says, he flew into a rage. He flew into a rage. More and more, we're living in a culture of outrage. You ever been copied all on a work email? Right? 
You, 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 you ever had a parent-teacher conference? You ever had an employee who was mad about some scheduling boss? We, we live in, in a culture of outrage. You've noticed it. We see it in politics for sure, pop culture. People are enraged, enraged. And let's, again, let's be careful not to just point it out there. Let's look in here. People are enraged. There is a disproportionate response emotionally to the things that we deal with. So what do we do? What do we do? How do we live that quality life that Bonhoeffer was talking about? How, how can we be like Jesus in a world that feels more and more corrupted? Well, I love that question. I do, man, I love that question. And I wanna, I wanna tell you, there's an answer. We don't have to just be like, well, what can we do? There's nothing we can do. That's not true. There is something we can do. There is something that we can do. Uh, in his book, The Failure of Nerve, rabbi and therapist Edwin Freeman calls that culture of outrage that I was describing an overly anxious society. This is what Freeman calls it, an overly anxious society. And he would argue that the reason people seem to be more negative and more dishonest and more aggressive and more divisive is because as a society, as a society we are overly anxious. Now, when I say anxious, don't just think about this as a type of social disorder. This includes any time we're experiencing worry, unease, or nervousness. So let's just stop for a second. Let me ask you, anybody felt any worry, unease, or nervousness lately? Monkeypox is coming. <laughs> the last I heard about it, a thousand people had it. I don't think I was built to know about sicknesses that only a thousand people have because I can't take it. I can't take it, right? Gas prices, elections, trials, sports, school acceptance letters, rejection letters, ex-spouses, custody. Anybody, anybody been feeling any worry, unease and nervousness? Anybody feel like that you are 24 seven surrounded by worry, unease and nervousness, school shootings? Come on, parents. You're, you're trying to be an awesome parent, a quality parent, live a quality life. And you're like, how do I do that without worrying, feeling uneasy and, and just freaking nervous all the time? I'm not gonna talk about the cell phones for the teenagers. It's a whole separate class we'll do later. I'm not teaching it. I need somebody to teach it. I just... So Friedman argues that any time a group of people, any, any group, any, any organized group of people, it could be a family, it could be a school system, it could be a country, it could be a church, any time that there is a group of people together, that if they are overly anxious, which he would say that we are, well, he's deceased now, but he would argue that we are, that any time a church or a family or a school system or a country, any, any time a group of people are overly anxious, they get stuck in what he calls a vicious cycle of an over-anxious society. A vicious cycle of an over-anxious society. Now, his book is probably one of the best books I've ever read. I wish I had time to tell you about it. I just don't. Um, 
but I'm gonna try to give you a really, really, really condensed version of his description of what he calls the vicious cycle of an overly anxious society. And I want you to just hang with me. I know it's hot. They're working on the air condition. I don't know what happened, but it's not working, but they're working on it. I actually do feel a little cold air coming, but um, just hang with me because I promise by the end, I'm gonna help you. This is gonna help you rebuild something, okay? That's been ruined. So give me just a few moments. I wanna, I wanna just give you a really short condensed version of what Friedman describes as the vicious cycle of an overly anxious society. We have an image we're gonna throw up here for you. Edwin Friedman's vicious cycle of an overly anxious society. Friedman says that anytime you're dealing with any group of people that are overly anxious, this cycle starts with step one. And what he says step one is, or the first characteristic is, is reactivity, reactivity. Reactivity is a heavy emphasis on feelings where members get caught in a vicious cycle of intense reactions. There is this feeling that the world needs my reaction to the latest thing that happened. That I'm not allowed to be indifferent, that I have to pick a side and I have to voice my opinion on anything that is happening. Uh, Friedman would call this hyperreactivity. When we are in a reactive state, everything feels personal. Everything is perpetually argumentative. Here's what's crazy. When you, when you are in an overly reactive culture, society, organization, calm is seen as a lack of concern and outrage is seen as passion. Well, don't you care, right? So if you are calm, you don't care. But if you're outraged, you're passionate. There's a loss of playfulness and humor. So I want you to just think about this for a second. Because I mean, as we think about society and a culture as, as a whole and where we're at right now, we are living in an overly reactive society and culture. This is the first characteristic, the first stage of a vicious cycle of an overly anxious society. Constant reactivity, constant reactivity. As a parent, I feel like that I could and I should voice my reaction to the referee at all times, <laughs> the coach at all times whether it's social media or whether it's dinner. You know, we used to never, the one rule about dinner parties was don't talk religion or politics. That used to be the rule. You remember that? That's all we talk about is religion and politics. Reaction, 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 reaction. This is the first stage characteristic of an overly anxious society, the vicious cycle we get caught in. So then the second stage or the second characteristic or quality is what Friedman calls herding, H-E-R-D, not H-U-R-T, but H-E-R-D, herding. And herding, it comes from the phrasing of like herding cattle. What it means is just prioritizing togetherness at the expense of progress by organizing around the least mature, the most dependent, or the most dysfunctional members. So in other words, he says that once you become a highly reactive society or a highly reactive family or a highly reactive church or a highly reactive, because you're overly anxious, then what happens is you begin to bond together over your reactivity, you pick a side, and then your side is now what is most important. And progress is sacrificed because no one can be left behind no one can be offended. No one can be hurt. Disagreements are discouraged. Feelings are more important than ideas. Peace is valued over progress. So we can't do anything moving forward if anyone that's a part of our group would in any way not benefit from that or something like that. So think about the society culture we live in or any organization, even a family. Think about a family where you can't make the progress you need because someone says, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna, build around the least immature member of the family. We can't move forward if we would leave the least immature behind, right? 
So this is the second step, reactivity, hurting. The third quality or characteristic is what Friedman calls blaming. You know what blaming is. Blaming is focusing on victimization instead of personal responsibility. So when, you, when, when you're highly reactive and then, you, and then you bond together for peace over progress, then you have to have a bad guy. You have to have a boogeyman. And there are bad guys out there, by the way, and there are boogeyman out there, and there are reasons that certain people are held back more than other people. This is not a complete denial by any means. But when you become a blaming culture, society, organization, family, church, school, you're cynical of anyone who's successful. Well, they obviously didn't have to deal with what I had to deal with. You have a lack of motivation. You distrust authority. You easily quit on commitments. And so the reason we are where we are is not because it has anything to do with me. It's because it has everything to do with them or him or her. They're the problem. This is the problem. We've reacted, we're overly reactive. We've bonded together over our reactions. Now we have someone to blame. We take no personal responsibility. Friedman says the fourth characteristic is a quick fix mentality. Because remember, we can't do anything that would require courageous advancement because we can't leave anybody behind. So what we wanna do is react about the problems, bond together, blame someone, and then provide this and get the solution that requires the least amount of pain necessary. So we want symptom relief. We think we can solve complex problems with really simple sound bites. And we say, let's do that. We have a low pain threshold. Uh, we want certainty, simple answers, emphasis on techniques, right? So like, let's think about this in the, in the, in the instance of a family. You know, there's, there's real problems in a family that are legitimate problems, you know, spouses. And so then the kids have taken sides. And so now you've kind of bonded and, and so now we've, we've, we've herded together and we blame the dad or we blame the mom or we blame the in-laws. And there is an answer. There is something that we could do to, to break out of this cycle. There is something we could do to fix it. But instead, let's buy a house. Let's have a baby. Let's go to Cancun. Low pain threshold, right? And then the last thing Friedman says is a lack of leadership. And Friedman would say that... Um, Five is the end result of the cycle and the cause of the cycle. So that when there's a lack of leadership, the organization's gonna be highly reactive, heard, blame, look for quick fixes. But then there's always a lack of leadership because the very qualities that you need in a leader are the qualities that will be resented because you're gonna do things and it's gonna be highly reactive, hurting, Blaming, quick, you are the problem when you possess the qualities that are needed to pull a culture, society, church, family, school out of this vicious cycle. And so we, we don't get the leaders that we need, we get the leaders that we create and we get leaders who are sucked into the cycle. So those leaders then play on our reactivity, hurting, blaming, quick fix, and we don't have the leaders that we need. So that, that was a lot of information, but I felt like it was important because Friedman argues that if you're going to be a leader of any kind, if you're gonna lead your family, if you're gonna lead your job, you're gonna lead your church, you're gonna lead anywhere, you have to be prepared to face serious resistance because you are trying to make positive change in an overly anxious place. 
And so to be the leader to, that is needed in whatever situation you're in, and it can be the smallest of settings, it could be the largest of settings, but Friedman would say that you have to be a non-anxious presence. That the number one quality in a person who pulls any organization out of a vicious cycle of over, over, of over anxiety is a leader or a person who can be in the midst of this but themselves be a non-anxious presence. Now I'm done talking about Friedman and the vicious cycle because when we get to this point, those of us who are Christians can very easily point to a person who stood in the middle of a vicious cycle of over anxiety and was a non-anxious presence. His name was Jesus Christ. We have a model, we have the gospels, we have the life of Jesus Christ that God in human form stepped into this world, this vicious cycle of over anxious people in this world. And he showed up and for 33 years, he was a non-anxious presence surrounded by emotionally charged people who were so emotionally charged that the reason they killed him is because he refused to get sucked into the vicious cycle. And so I, I, I wanna end today trying to give you an answer. I don't want to just present to you the problem. I got a few minutes left. I want to just try to end today looking at Jesus and providing some type of answer for how can we be a non-anxious person, a non-anxious leader, a non-anxious boss, a non-anxious dad, a non-anxious principal, a non-anxious, you know, uh, entrepreneur, a non-anxious high school student. How can we be that? So I wanna just give you five qualities of a non-anxious leader or person surrounded by emotionally charged people. Five qualities of a non-anxious leader or person surrounded by emotionally charged people. Don't get freaked out by that word leader because you lead something. You lead something. Somebody looks to you. And if we're not careful, if we just are in default mode, we'll just get sucked into this vicious cycle and we will spend all of our time reacting hurting together, blaming somebody, looking for a quick fix and resenting the people who have the qualities that we need to get pulled out of it, right? And so let me give you these five qualities of a non-anxious person surrounded by emotionally charged people. First quality is this, uh, someone who's unhurried. Someone who is unhurried. Um, maybe you thought I was gonna say somebody who's bold, well, it takes boldness to be unhurried. Maybe you thought somebody who is, has strength. Maybe you thought I was going to say somebody who can, uh, isn't afraid to share their opinion. No. No, that, that's somebody who's, who's, who's sucked in the cycle. First quality is somebody who's unhurried. Unhurried. In our culture, slow is how we describe things we're disappointed in. When, when service is bad at a restaurant, we say it was slow. When a movie's boring, we say it was slow. When somebody has a low IQ, we say they're slow. So the message is very clear. Slow is bad, fast is good. But spiritual depth is not a 100-yard dash. Quality life is not a sprint. And uh, like I said, I've been doing some writing recently, and it dawned on me as I was doing some study and, and reading and, that Jesus never ran. We don't think about that because we don't think of him as a human, but you go read the four gospels. And I've mentioned this before, I think, because it was so profound to me. Jesus never ran. There is, 
the only way he is ever described in the Gospels is walking. Three years. He only walked. And this is really quite a revelation for me because, you know, we think about the way that we respond to a text message or an email when someone needs something from us. And this doesn't mean Jesus had nothing to do. On the contrary, he lived with an intense sense of mission and purpose. And so our, our first rejection to, to, to being unhurried is we say, Jason, I got a lot to do, but it's actually the reality, ironically, is that most of the time, if we're in a hurry, it's because of our lost sense of mission and purpose, not because we have mission and purpose. We're distracted, we're bouncing around, we're just going faster in no specific direction. I do this a lot whenever I'm lost. Um, I know people don't get lost anymore with GPS on their phone, but I struggle to follow the GPS on the phone. I don't know, it's like, I don't know, it's like authority issues or something, but <laughs> anytime I get lost, I do, I just take wrong turns all the time. I feel like, 0.8 miles, is it now? And I just turn, I'm, it's always rerouting. And I've found that when I get lost, I go faster. I don't know why I do that. But that's the way my soul works too. And so this is the first step in becoming a non-anxious presence. It's rarely the difference between obvious good and evil that causes us to miss real intimacy with God, to live a quality life, to have depth. It's just that we're too preoccupied. We're more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual. We don't, we don't, it's not that we have anything against depth or quality. It's just that we're, we're, we're stretched too thin. We're stretched too thin. But as we decide and make a commitment to kind of embrace this first characteristic or quality of a non-anxious presence, it leads us to the second quality or the stage, which is a person who is comfortable in silence and solitude. Silence and solitude. Some of y'all are already so bummed because you thought I was going to give you like this great, awesome action plan. But this is a really great, awesome action plan. It's counterintuitive. This, this, this idea of being silent and being alone can only be experienced by someone who's unhurried. Only an unhurried soul can be still and quiet. Time and time again, Jesus gets away from the crowds early in the morning before everybody else is awake and the disciples wake up and they gotta go look for him. Like, dude, everybody's looking for you. Where did you go? He's getting away. He started his ministry with 40 days of silence and solitude, right? In silence, you close off your soul from sounds, noise, music, words in order to sense and concentrate on the presence of God. And nothing reveals the anxiety of your soul like silence. You know what I'm talking about? Freaky. Crazy. But I love the way Ebert Arnold says that he says, people who love one another can be silent together. And that's so true. Like when you're really at peace and comfortable with a person on a road trip, like nobody got to talk. You can be over at the house. We're really connected and close. Nobody's got to talk. It's when you're nervous. It's when you feel like you have to impress. It's when you feel like you got a host that there can't be silence. This is the, I'm the worst at this. I mean, I'm just, I talk louder. I laugh louder. I don't know what's going on. I'm just like, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Like, I'm just so uncomfortable. But man, when I'm comfortable with you, we ain't gonna talk. We ain't gonna talk. Same is true with, with God. In solitude, 
We break free from the constant awareness of others and the roles and the personas that we play because we're always playing a role. We're always acting in some way. A personality is just a persona. And so we get away. Jesus, you know, encouraged his disciples when he was teaching them how to pray. We'll talk about this in just a second, but he he just said, you got to get away by yourself so you don't role play, right? I know what some of you are thinking. You're like, okay, what do I do once I'm alone and quiet? You're doing it. You're like, no, but I mean, like, what do I do once I'm alone and quiet? You're doing it. You did it. You're doing it. There's nothing to do. Be alone, be quiet. But I think you'll discover as you become the kind of person who feels more comfortable alone and quiet, you'll move to this third stage or the third characteristic of a non-anxious presence. And that's prayer. A person who prays. Jesus, like I just mentioned, when he taught his disciples, he said, get alone so you won't be tempted to role play in front of others. Again, he's showing us how important solitude is. Praying regularly gives you the confidence and instincts to pray more moment by moment throughout the events of your day. And Jesus was clear that prayer is the antidote to being overly reactive. Anytime you find yourself being overly reactive, you have not been praying. We've preached it here before, but, you know, Jesus, the night in the garden, Jesus says, pray. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The disciples don't pray. They sleep. The soldiers show up. They're ready to cut people's ears off. Jesus has been praying. He's at peace. And I have found in my life, the more I want to cut people's ears off, I have not been spending time with Jesus, talking to him, calming my soul. Right? And so we... We have to be unhurried so that we can be silent and alone, so that we can be prayerful. The fourth quality or characteristic of being a non-anxious presence is someone who is present, is present. So now we have kind of, we, we have retreated in order to get our soul right so that we can re-engage. And by present, I mean fully in whatever moment you are in with whoever you are in it with. And I gotta be honest, just my own insecurity, I don't feel qualified to preach on this. I'm the most distracted person you've ever met in your life. I ain't got to tell you that. I marvel at people who are able to be so present. And I prayerfully am asking God to to develop that kind of quality in me more and more. And Jesus modeled this over and over and over again. The woman at the well, present. The disciples are like, hey man, come on, we're hungry. It's dinner time. He's like, I'm good. I'm right here. This is where I'm supposed to be. Woman with the issue of blood, Jesus is surrounded by mobs and crowds of people. And Jesus says, there's one person who touched me and I know that one person touched me. I felt it leave me. Like there's a, there's a person here in all of this madness. There's a person and Jesus found her, right? Nicodemus came in the middle of the night. Jesus didn't say like, come back tomorrow. He stayed up late. Jesus was constantly surrounded by crowds, but he was present with people, individuals. How did he do that? Well, he did it because he was unhurried. And a person who is unhurried and comfortable disconnecting from the business and the noise of everything will always be able to be more present when they re-engage. But many times we're we're on our phones or we're we're on our way somewhere else and we're distracted or we're angry and we miss moments, miss moments. Now I've taken like 38 minutes of your time to get to the fifth point, you ready? I could have just led with this, but you wouldn't have got it, right? Okay. Unhurried silence, alone, prayerful, present. If we want to be a non-anxious presence who's going to rebuild something, we have to be prophetic. We have to be prophetic. We have to be prophetic 
voices. Now, most of you were probably with me for the first four because that sounds like a mental health day, you know? Great, unhurried, nobody bothering me, you know, connecting with Jesus, that's great. Read a good book, I'm with you. But we, the purpose of those is to get us to this fifth characteristic or quality. So what does it mean to be prophetic? Does it mean like I tell the future? You're saying, Jason, if I do these things, I can tell the future? That's not what I'm saying at all. Predicting the future is just one very specific way that prophets were used in the Bible. Prophecy just means inspired words from God. The definition of prophecy is inspired words from God. So that could be encouraging words, advice, teaching something, or any number of other things that God uses to help someone. And in an overly anxious, outraged society with Sambalas just surrounding us all the time, enraged, what could be more needed than people filled with God's spirit who speak inspired words? Unhurried, peaceful, calm, prayerful, present people who speak inspired words of God. What could be more important than that? When you're sitting at a play date with other moms who are freaking out about the news, you're unhurried, silent, prayerful, and present, and you speak up with inspired words from God. Your students are struggling. Your employees are angry. Your spouse is insecure. Your kids are losing their way. You feel yourself getting sucked into this cycle of over-anxiety. But you decide you're going to embrace this non-anxious presence. And so you unhurry and disconnect and you're prayerful and you're present to be able to speak the inspired words from God. But everybody hear me. You will not get those words from TikTok or an Insta story. You're not going to read them on your timeline or find them on Netflix. You have to develop a quality life and have the courage to be different. The courage to be different. You remember what we've said every week throughout this series that Nehemiah finds out what's happening and he prays and fasts for four months before he ever does anything. What does that sound like? That sounds like somebody who's unhurried. That sounds like somebody who's alone. That sounds like somebody who is praying and now he is here with the mission on his hand and he is fully present and Sanballat and Daryl and Daryl show up and they're just, you know, spitting rage and anger at everybody. And Nehemiah says, but we continued the work and we finished the project with enthusiasm because Nehemiah showed up non-anxious and prophetic. Here's what I can promise you. I don't say this with a chip on my shoulder. I don't say this with any defensiveness. But here's what I can promise you. You wanna rebuild something? You wanna fix something that's ruined? You wanna be a prophetic voice? You will be misunderstood. You will be made fun of. You will be lied about. You will be threatened. You will be resented. But it will only be because you possess the qualities and the courage to do what everyone else wishes they could do. The very qualities that will be resented about you are the qualities that are needed 
to change the situation. But it will be rejected early on and resented early on. But you stand firm. You stand firm. You keep getting away. You keep getting with Jesus. You keep talking to God. You keep showing up and you keep speaking inspired words from God. And I don't want to be hyperbolic, but I just want to encourage a mom and a dad and a teacher and a principal and a banker and an entrepreneur. And I want to encourage you, be a prophetic voice. And a prophetic voice doesn't mean standing up and, and being doom and gloom. Maybe it does. Maybe that's the inspired word for God sometimes, but we've got enough of that. We're in a hyper-reactive society. Be in a prophetic voice who shows up and speaks inspired word from God into an overly anxious situation. Model it. Live a quality of life. Find quality friends. Develop a quality private life and have the courage to live a public life. Are you with me? Man, I just feel like God's all over this. I do. As I was working on this sermon, I just felt like, man, we need to hear this. I need to hear this. As a pastor, it feels harder to pastor now than it ever has. And maybe every pastor for every generation has felt that way. Probably. I don't know. But man, it feels harder to pastor now than ever before. It feels harder to be a parent now than ever before. Maybe every parent has felt that way. I know some of y'all tell me that's the way your kids are grown now. That's awesome. Good for you. But it feels awful. I'm married to a teacher. It feels harder to be a teacher now than ever before, you know? And I'm just saying, man, God has us right where he wants us. We are the light. We are the salt. But we're not going to out anxiety culture. We're not going to outreact culture. We've got to be different people with a different quality of life that shows up and is a prophetic voice speaking inspired words from God, from a soul that's different. You with me? I'm going to pray for us and Kaylee and the team are going to come and they're going to lead us in a couple more songs and you're going to have an opportunity to take communion. I mean, I think it would be just pretty amazing when you take the bread. You don't have to do it, by the way. Don't let that, you know, you, you can skip this moment if you're uncomfortable with that. But if, you, if you're a Christian, you want to take communion, you have this opportunity. And I think when you take that bread and you dip it in that juice, why don't you take just a moment, 10 seconds, 15, 30 seconds. Why don't you take just a moment and why don't you think about how Jesus, our Savior, showed up as a non-anxious presence in an overly anxious world. And the reason his body was broken and the reason that his blood was shed was because he possessed the qualities that they needed but killed him for. And he did it so now we can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, with God, okay? Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus, for a model, for a way. We don't have to guess what it looks like to show up as a prophetic voice. We don't have to guess what it looks like to be unhurried. We don't have to guess what it looks like to be silent and alone. We don't have to guess what it looks like to pray or to be present. We have you, Jesus, to show us. And so, God, I just pray that we would be more like Jesus. Not because we, you know, ball up our fists or bite down on our teeth, but because we become the kinds of people who are like Jesus, filled with the Spirit of God and, 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 and displaying and growing the fruit of the Spirit in our life. There would be a quality to our life, God. There'd be a quality to our friends, a quality to our private life, a courage for public life. That we would be able to step into moments when everything feels 
overly emotional and would be able to be a prophetic voice to people who need you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.